Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Holy Community Church. So glad you're here. Would you stand if you're able? We're going to spend some time worshiping through song this morning.
church. So glad you're here. Would you take a moment now, greet the community around you, make them feel welcome this morning.
Good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time or you're a long-time member, we want to welcome you. My name is Ian O'Mara. I am the Director of Community Life. And my name is Ryan Sylvie. I'm the Student Ministries Director here at La Jolla Community Church. just want to welcome you all here on this one wonderful Sunday morning, if I can speak. Uh, if everybody wants to open up their bulletin inside the front cover, you'll see a little perforated page you can tear off where you can fill out a little prayer request. We have a dedicated team at La Jolla Community Church that goes over every single prayer request that is written down, and they thoroughly pray over each and every one. So please fill those out, and then when the ushers come forward with the offering plates, you can just drop that right in there, keep your notes, and tear off the little uh, prayer sheet. Also, this brings us to our announcements. On the, um, sorry, on the 14th, we're going to have Palm Sunday here. And with Palm Sunday, we're going to be celebrating with a brunch. If you have a friend or somebody you want to invite or you haven't connected with people, this is a great opportunity just to, to connect with people around a table for food. And also in the, in the guise of food, we have these little pamphlets here. I'll hand that to Ryan. It's, we're going to be doing Holy Week dinner. So after Palm Sunday and before Good Friday, we're encouraging people to get together around a table and just have a meal with their friends and family. If you're in a life group. Or if you just want to host one, you're like, hey, I don't, I don't know very many people at La Jolla Community Church, but I want to host the dinner at my house. We'll get people to come to your house, and you can just sit around a table and just fellowship and just reflect on Jesus. And we give you this, this, this little handout here. It's a step-by-step -step process. And I will tell you, if you're a person that loves to cook food or you love to buy food, this is the event for you. If you're an introvert, you can hide behind a glass of water, and no one will even know you're there. And if you don't want to talk, just take a nice bite of food. It's a great event, but it's, it's all centered on Jesus, and that's what we want to encourage people to get together around tables and just contemplate what it means to be in Holy Week. Along with Holy Week, we've got Good Friday coming up on April 19th. There'll be a service in here from 6.30 to 7.30 in the evening. Uh, we're going to have some prayer stations that we've been working on. Really excited to share that with you guys, so please join us on Friday, April 19th from 6.30 to 7.30. Um, and then following that, on the 21st of April, we're going to have three Easter services, count them, three Easter services, one at 8 a.m., one at 9.30 a.m., and one at 11. So they're different than a regular service times, but Easter is a fantastic time where people are looking for a place to go to church. There's tons and tons of people in our world that, that are looking for something, and Easter Sunday is the perfect opportunity to invite your neighbors, invite your friends, just start up a conversation. Hey, what are you doing on the 21st? Would you like something to do on the 21st? It is a fantastic opportunity to invite your friends to church and just help to share the love of Jesus with them. Also with that, this is the last Sunday for Board of, Nom uh, Board of Trustee nominations. If you're a, a member of La Jolla Community Church, you can be nominated or you can nominate people to be part of the Board of Trustees. The Board of Trustees is really the highest form of servant leadership in this church, but this Sunday is the last day. These little sheets are in the foyer right over there. Just grab one, fill them out, and you can drop it in one of the boxes or you can give it to one of the pastoral staff. The final event that we have actually immediately after this service, if you'll make your way over to the Welcome Center, a few months ago, they hired this crazy, weird dude to take over the youth program, and we realized that a lot of the congregation, a lot of the parents haven't gotten to get to know me yet. So if you'd like to get to know me a little bit better, join us immediately after second service in the Welcome Center. I'll be giving a little talk on how I came to be at LJCC, why I'm here, why I do what I do, and a little bit of the future of where I hope to take the youth group, and how you can partner with me and help lift up these amazing, amazing students uh, for the glory of the Lord. I just want to know how tall you are, because I don't, I've never felt short before, but today, you're making it. I, I love when Dom's up here, no offense. Uh, you? I love you, Dom. 
Okay, let's, we're a church that's rooted in prayer, so with those bad jokes, let's just go to a time of prayer, time putting our focus on the Lord. Lord, we just thank you so much for all you're doing in our lives, all that you've done for us, that as we come closer to Holy Week, where we can reflect on the fact that you gave yourself for us, you went to the cross for our sins, and we're risen again on the third day. Lord, help us to be a time of reflection in a time of celebration. Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you because you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, as the, the positive things and the successes and the triumphs just swell in our lives, or if it's the negative things, it's the losses, it's the hurt, it's the pain. Lord, through all of that, through the storms and through the blessings, Lord, we would keep our eyes on you because it is all about you. Lord, we thank you so much for what you're doing in this community and what you will do for your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Ryan described that as a meet and greet. It's actually Some an intervention. Uh, <laughs> we want to coax him out of his shell. We want to try to draw him out a little bit. Uh, we are so grateful to have Ryan uh, on our staff and uh, excited to see all the ways that God's going to use him to bring uh, teenagers together they can understand, so that they can understand their purpose in life. Uh, you can imagine how high pressure it is being a teenager these days. Think about your own experience as a teenager. Uh, if, you, if you can think back that far. Um, and think about how stressful it was. And uh, amp that up with all the expectations on kids these days and the uh, uncertainties about the world in which we live. And uh, what, what a gift it is that we can provide a place for them, a, a refuge, an oasis, a place for them to come process uh, life issues. And so that's what we're doing today. Uh, we're in week four of running life's rapids. Uh, have you noticed that life has rapids? Uh, from an airplane, when you fly over a river with rapids, it looks beautiful. Blue or kind of greenish water, little tiny white lines. You go, how pretty that is. If you're down a little lower, if you're on a high cliff looking into a river valley, you say, oh my gosh, that looks so quaint. I wish I lived down there by that. And then look at this picture. When you actually get down in the river, oh my gosh. Now, these people just minutes previously were probably laughing, talking, saying this is going to be so much fun, such a piece of cake. Uh, why do we need uh, all this emergency gear with us? And probably, we don't even need a guy, probably. And they kept hearing this humming, becoming a roar. Because they kept looking for a plane or, or, or something that would be making that noise. And all of a sudden, uh, as they turned to a corner, bend in the river, it was like and, and now they're looking at the guy saying, that, that's what you were talking about? Where do we get out so we can walk right out? Oh no, that's our first rapid. But thankfully, that's the smallest one. Of the day, and so we look at them. They're all leaning forward. They're in that you know uh, airplane moment when they say, "Hey, you know, lean forward, put your head between your legs, and you know, be ready to you know." And so these people are freaked out, no doubt. The good news is that they uh, came through, or else we wouldn't have been able to see this picture. Um, the bad news is it's going to be really scary, and they will get wet. But of course, that's what you sign up for, right, on a river trip. Uh, you will get wet. When I was um, in college, I was a volunteer leader in Young Life. I was running this Young Life club at this high school, Wildland High School. And uh, I wanted to take a, a bunch of uh, these kids uh, on a mountaineering trip. And so we went up to Canada. And Young Life had this thing called uh, Malibu, beautiful camp up in Canada. But then they have Beyond Malibu, these magnificent mountains between uh, Malibu and Whistler. These magnificent glaciers and peaks, snow-covered peaks. So 
we had a, a window of weather that would allow this really extensive trip. Um, and so right before we, we, uh, we took off uh, from base camp, the guide uh, said, hey, uh, follow me, we went for a walk, and we looked at this peak that he said, you know, a couple days you're gonna be on that peak, and you're in that backcountry. But first we have to warm up. And so warm up meant, he, he walks us over to this gigantic log uh, in Princess Louisa Inlet, and he, he grabs a hand, grabs a hand, grab each other's hand. He said, when I say three, we're gonna jump off this high, it's a high log into this very cold water. And it was, I, I was waiting for three, but it was about on two that we were going off the log. And all of us, and I thought, so impressive that he's holding everybody's hand, that he's going in with us. Of course, it was sneaky, because that way, you know, he knew that everybody was gonna go in the water. We got in that water, it was so hypothermically cold. Nobody could even complain. Everybody was just, you know how it goes when you're in really cold water, <laughs> you're trying to breathe, and then laughing, because you're like, oh my gosh, we survived. And it was a great introduction uh, to the rest of the trip because the rest of the trip was, was massively fun but massively challenging. About halfway through the trip, way in the back of these glaciers, having gone to that big peak and cut, slid down onto another glacier, we're, we're about as far away as we were going to be before in this eight-day circuit. And, um, uh, and a kid named Doug Ament was, was um, starting one of the stoves. We we're on, on basically snow with some rock outcroppings. And so we, he was starting a, 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 this, uh, this stove, little Optimus Prima stove to make some hot water, have some tea or hot chocolate, it was really cold. And, uh, but sun shining, but cold. And all of a sudden the stove blows up. I mean, in a serious way, it hits, and it turned around, there's Doug, who has long hair, on fire, chairs on fire, his jacket's on fire. It used to be a $200 down jacket, and now it's like a 20 cent down jacket. You know? and, and his hand is all burned, and so we jump on him, throw snow on him. We had a, a radio, we called down to the base camp, there's a doctor in Malibu, hey, anything we need to do? Yeah, just pack him in the snow. Pack him in the snow for how long? Like a half hour. Because these are serious, second to, could be third degree burns. So his hand, his head, and he didn't say a word. He was so, I won't say chill about it, but he was so um, <laughs> calm. Uh, and, uh, and we prayed over him. Uh, and, and by God's grace, he, he had no residual damage, no scars, no, you know, it was amazing. Um, but yeah, you'll get wet, right? You get immersed in the elements. It was about oh, 20 years later uh, that uh, we were on a boat together sailing across the Pacific. And uh, uh, I was really feeling sick. And just as I was throwing up, he leans over to me, he goes, remember that trip in Canada? his boat. Uh, you will get wet, uh, but that's not the end of the story. Uh, something else happens that's worth getting wet, right? You come back from the river trip with these kinds of pictures. And so that's what Peter is doing in this letter. We call it First Peter. He wrote two letters, uh, and this being the first letter, he's talking to people in a very difficult situation. I summarized it for you. He's writing to Christians in a hostile environment which threatens them and causes them stress. You don't have to have any particular geographical place to fit that description, do you? This could be about you. You might say, right now, I feel like I'm in a hostile environment that threatens me and causes me stress. Uh, they were in a, a region uh, with all kinds of names describing these small provinces, Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia, etc., all of which was a Roman province, part of the easternmost part of the Roman Empire. Nero is the emperor. 
So uh, if there's any good thing about this, they're not in Rome where the wild, crazy dude Nero lives, but they're up in this other province where people do not like anybody who follows Jesus. Why? Not because they know anything about Jesus. They just know that if you're not following Caesar, you're an enemy of the state. And they had been pushed out 10 years previous to this letter uh, in, in about 54. Uh, Claudius, then emperor, pushed all the Jews out of Rome. A lot of them went up to this area. Uh, so some of these people were Jews, others were Christians who were pushed out of communities, because uh, at that point there was no distinction between Jews and Christians, oh, they're all the same, get them out of here. So you have this population of people who are the, the least and the last and the lost. They have been literally exiled, they're literally strangers, they're literally considered foreigners, no rights, no voice, uh, abused easily, taken advantage of, and, and there are these people who worship some foreign god. But because it wasn't Caesar, they were called pagans. Isn't that an irony? They were considered pagans. You have no God. They called them atheists. You have no God because you don't worship the official gods of the Roman Empire. And so there was all these myths about them. Uh, they practiced cannibalism and incest because they called each other brother and sister, yet they were married. What's that all about? Uh, it was very, 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 very difficult. And he wants them to see uh, that this is inevitable in this life. And to embrace it as part of their journey with Jesus. How do you get people to embrace things that they're overwhelmed by? And, they don't, and they're trying to get the larger context to understand it through. Why would Peter have any credibility writing this letter? Well, first of all, he's in Rome uh, under arrest, under Nero. And we think it was around this time, shortly after this time, uh, that he was executed. Uh, we don't know, but we think this was the case because Nero, he died under the reign, in the reign of Nero. And Nero committed suicide in 68 AD. That's part of his integrity. He knows what it means to suffer. But really part of his integrity goes way back to when he first met Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, so you were out fishing all night and you didn't catch any fish, right? Well, go out, push off a little bit and drop your nets. He does it, they catch more fish than they'd ever caught. You'd think Peter would come back and say, well, that was a good call. You're coming with, with us all the time. Or something like that. Instead, he was mortified. It's as if he handled the failure better than he was handling the success. And what did he say to Jesus? Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. And what did Jesus say to him? Peter, he said, he said, Simon, be not afraid. Be not afraid. That was the first of five times at key points that Jesus said that to Peter. Through the entire three years they spent together at key points, whether it was a storm on the lake, for a guy who was a boatman to be afraid in a storm, like Peter and Jesus to Simon, Simon, uh, fear not. Uh, when they were on the mountain called the Transfiguration, Jesus has this experience where he's glowing with the reflected glory of God. And Peter's freaking out, and Jesus says, fear not. Uh, several other occasions, and especially at the end of his life, you know, uh, going into the crucifixion, Jesus says, Peter, fear not. So what Peter is doing is what Jesus did for him. He's saying there's something important at play at work here. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Trust me. So that's what P uh, Peter is trying to do for these folks in these very, very difficult circumstances where they're being victimized, but he doesn't want them to start thinking like victims. He wants them to feel and think as though they are victors. It sounds absurd. The Roman Empire is the only victor here. They swallow civilizations whole. At this point, uh, the Roman Empire was, went from Britain to Iraq and back. 
And so the absurdity of saying you're victors, yeah, here's why. You have a new family. You have a new identity. You have a new and living hope. Uh, you're part of a new temple that God is building out of you. You're new priests in that temple. All things are possible because Christ is in you and is at work in this world. To this day, that sounds like a ridiculously flimsy statement. But for those who know Jesus' transforming presence, uh, this is the word that gives us courage and hope and allows us to reframe otherwise impossible circumstances. And so he's saying to them, look, you're, you're giving the privilege of being worthy to serve him and even suffer with him. That you have Christ's powerful resources available to you. That you can depend on him for strength, support, and staying power. It's not about you anymore. It's about him in you. And so that's true for us. Likewise, uh, God does not protect us from elements. He empowers us to endure them. You will get wet. But he knows where he's going and how to get there. So trust him in the journey as you engage in those rapids. In fact, we've said previously, when you encounter these difficult times, say, Lord, I know this is where you want to meet me. What do you want to do in this difficult time that I did not want to be in, did not anticipate being in, maybe don't deserve being in? Or perhaps I, I, I've done things to get me here. But now that I'm here, Lord, what do you want to do having gotten my attention? What do you want to do in me and through me? What do you want to teach me? How do you want to comfort me? How do you want to confront me? How do you want to redirect me or confirm in me the work you're doing? Do you, you relate to this in your own life? This is a fresh letter. It's like the ink is still wet on this letter. But having that historic context is helpful. This is just not written to a bunch of people in church somewhere going, oh, another letter from Peter. Uh, these are people who are saying, I don't know how I can make it one more day. I'm concerned for me. I'm concerned for my kids. But if you want to be in Jesus' boat, you will get wet. It's just a fact of life. And the good news is that Jesus is in the boat with us. And he keeps saying in many different ways, don't be afraid. Process your fear. Understand the threats, but ultimately, don't be afraid, because I am with you. And so the first big idea that comes out of this is that we need spiritual strength to prevail. Why? Why? Because the end of all things is near is what he says. That's, a, that's a, the verse that leads into the verses we're going to look at. 1 Peter 4, 7 says this, The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Now, this was mocked then and to this day. Oh, the end of all things is at hand, near. Well, he's taking his time, isn't he? And so, so people look back and say, well, look, they all thought Jesus was going to return right away, and he didn't. Where's Jesus? Uh, and, 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 and myth is the point that what Peter is saying is God has done everything he needs to do to, to, to create a new heaven and a new earth. It's right now. Now, when he decides to do that, it's, it's only he knows. Remember when Jesus was ascending into heaven, they said, uh, is this now when you bring all things together and write and restore Israel to its proper position? And, and, and Jesus said what? It's not for you to know, know the times. Only the Father knows. If you ever hear anybody, a pastor, a theologian, some pundit say, I know uh, when Jesus is returning or claim to have prophetic information that indicates when Jesus is returning, they're speaking out of school. They're speaking out of turn. They, they, they are saying more than they have a right to say. And some of them have been phenomenal pastors in my lifetime. People like Chuck Smith or writers like um, um, uh, Hal Lindsey and others. 
to this day, people saying, I can tell you when Jesus is returning. And they might be, have been well-intended, and they might have had a sense of urgency, but they didn't have any idea what they were talking about. What we need to see is that the end of things, uh, the end of all things is near, always. Every day, the end of all things is near. Peter takes us up, in fact, in his second letter, Second Peter, he says, hey, lots of people mock and say, well, so where's Jesus? I thought he was coming back. And he says, you know, in that letter, he doesn't want anybody to perish, so he's, he's, he's waiting. He's, he's, out of his grace, he's given as much time as possible for people to respond to him. And that's where you get the phrase that he quotes from Scripture, a day to God is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. But, but you know, in a sense, mark my word, uh, this is true, that all things are at hand, the end is near, uh, and so how do I know when it's near, you know, when should I repent if I know that the end is near? Uh, the day before you die. I don't know the day I'm going to die and repent today. So the idea is there's a sense of urgency, a sense of expectancy that all believers have to hold at all times. So any prophetic work we do is all about understanding the context of how we can live in the moment, knowing that God owns the next moment beyond our, our view. Now here's the crazy thing about this. Nothing has changed. Our culture believes in progress, not judgment. That's what the Romans believed. Another day, another country. Another day, another culture. Who's next? Our, we believe that in our, our culture. If we do think for one moment there might be a judgment, we think that it's going to be a trophy ceremony for all of us. Non-believers especially say, look, if there's a loving God, he owes me, and so I'm not worried about it. Because I'm as good as you. And, and then you have to explain, well, if you're as good as me, you're in more serious trouble than you thought. Because uh, it's not about being good or better than me. It's, it's about being perfect, like God. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all of us have no hope but for God's mercy and grace. And that's why we talk about um, the end of all things is near, and therefore be alert. That is, be heads up about what God is doing right now, knowing that he could return at any moment and, and bring in a new heaven and a new earth. What does he want us to do in this unique time in which we live that is, that is critical and essential for all those people around us? So Peter's really saying to these people, look, at this point, it includes you, but it's not about you. It's about what God is doing to speak to the world around you and through you. But when you're in that horribly dark place, you just can't see that. At that point, you have to say, okay, Lord, I will trust you. Uh, I, I will trust uh, in the night what is true and I can see in the day. I will trust you, even though I can't see what you're talking about. Mockers laugh at prophecy like this. Wise people take it to heart and obey it. What does he mean by being sober-minded? It's not being intoxicated, being drunk uh, by the, the myths of the culture. Our myth is that everything is getting better and better. We live in a myth of progress in our culture. How do I know? Because every new technology, we think that's it, how awesome we are. We have indoor plumbing, awesome. We're great, we all take that for granted now. Uh, we have water on demand, mm, wow, that's pretty good. And it doesn't come through lead pipes, you don't die of it. You can cook. Uh, you can do this. You can have your refrigerator order groceries for you. Uh, and is, isn't the internet awesome until somebody demands Bitcoin from you? But the funny thing about it, when we look past all the technology and the so-called so, so progress, we're so enamored of what is, is called today progressive. But there's nothing progressive about human nature today. It's as regressive as ever. There are different Neros around the world to this very day. There are people whose only interest is, is their own interest, not the people they're supposed to serve, right? So this is the nature of human experience. We have made zero progress. We're just better at rationalizing the progress we haven't made. 
and when we boast about the great technologies and the great advances, all of them wonderful. What's there not to like about the advances of medicine? Stuff that you would have died from, but for $6 worth of antibiotics, you take it and move on with your life. But what is a life you're moving on with? That's the question. So this is the dilemma that faced them, and this is the exact same dilemma that faces us. And so the heartbreak continues in this world. People take their own lives, why? They've given up hope for living. And when you look at the life they're living, you think, most people in the world would, would, would give anything to live that life. Why did you feel like you needed to end it? And so this is what Peter's speaking about. Be sober-minded. Be clear about what life is all about. Don't be intoxicated by all the fake stuff that the world throws at you, to mollify you, to pacify you, to anesthetize you. Why do you want to be sober-minded and clear-headed so you can pray? Pray as one who's informed of God's purposes because his word reveals him. So Lord, I'm being taken advantage of, I'm being abused up here in this Roman province. All the odds are stacked against me. I'm scared for my kids, I'm scared for my well-being. Lord, give me what? Release? No, Lord, give me strength. Protect me, Lord, certainly, but Lord, better than that, give me courage. Give me a voice. Give me a deep conviction that there's something bigger and better than this. And it's called you. <laughs> and you are in the midst of this with me, so there is something bigger and better here, in spite of all circumstances to the contrary. And so in 1 Peter uh, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 to 9, he says this, So therefore, since all things are near, be sober and clear-headed, be, be prayerful, and above all, love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. This is not a hall pass for sloppy living. Oh, boys will be boys. Oh, that's no big deal. Everybody lies, cheats, steals. Everybody, you know, and you start rationalizing things. No, what he's saying is that this love that Christ gives us and transforms us allows us to extend that same love and grace to other people. And so in a sense, the salvation that God makes known to us ends up being a covering over people. It becomes a condition for our accepting people for the sinners that they are, offering them the forgiveness they need, being reconciled to them, comforting them as possible, confronting them as necessary. Do you follow this? This is the power of love. The power of love is not to lie to each other. The power of love is to speak the truth graciously, compassionately to one another. To be so willing to let your own stuff be known to other people because you trust them enough to say, hey, I think I can help. I can pray for you. I can counsel you. I can encourage you. So loving deeply means getting scary close to people. Uh, a number of years ago, a friend of ours, Don Miller, wrote a book called Scary Close. It came on the heels of him turning 40 and having been engaged several times and always being in a place where he sabotaged the relationship. He was very frustrated because so many girls were so weird. <laughs> and women, too. Until somebody said, hey, man, because I love you, maybe I should point out something. I think the one constant in all these funky relationships is you. So he went to this place called Onsite outside of Nashville, and he talks about it. He talks about it in the book. And they said, hey, let's go to school on you. Let's understand what makes Don Miller tick. Uh, single parent family, dad in and out of your life, pressure, stresses, performance needs, you know, pressures, a big time author, can't really figure out what to write next. Hey, maybe you don't know who you are. 
even though you have a faith in Jesus, maybe you don't know how, how to receive his love in ways that sets you up to love other people with that love. And so Scary Close is the book he wrote. Phenomenal book. If you haven't read it, I strongly encourage you to read it. It was so great a couple of years ago sitting down in um, old Venice in Point Loma having dinner with him and his new wife, who is super sharp, uh, just wonderful, a perfect fit for him. He could have so easily missed her. He hadn't been willing to get scary close. You see, that means that you see other people's sins and you let them see yours. Not that we flaunt our sins, but they're, we're willing to get scary close enough to say, here's who I really am. Here's what makes me laugh, here's what makes me cry, here's my great vulnerability, here's my great heartache, my sorrow. Uh, it means giving people access to your life, the one you really live. It's the life you feel like you might need to ex explain some things. This is the sort of life that uh, becomes grist for God's mill. He grinds into something that's life-giving versus life-sucking. Are you with me on this? This kind of love covers a multitude of sins because it accepts people as the sinners they are. I assume that every one of you is a sinner. Uh, I assume that you know that I am a sinner. That's not a permanent category. It's simply a description of our, our, our place without God. It causes us to do anything possible to make sense of our life, to protect ourselves, to feel something other than dread or boredom. And so when we experience this salvation of God, it's an ongoing life-giving, life-transforming process of coming to terms with who we really are. And finding out that every time we come to that new place, we say, okay, here's where, where I am. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm trying to hide. Here's what I'm trying to protect. Oh, I, I did this, but really it's not because of that. There must be something over here. What is that thing? And also we start to get more free. Not only free to admit who we are. Yeah, watch me as close as you want. All you're going to see is a person in, under construction. Our life becomes one of repentance and receiving God's love one day at a time. And the funny thing is we end up being able to offer that to other people. We don't go around approving sin or validating sin. We say, you too. Wow, you too. Yeah, guess what? There's grace for you. And so the hospitality that we're, we're to give to each other without grumbling is to make room for each other in our lives. <laughs> love without hospitality is just an abstraction. I love all people, whoever they are, whatever their names might be. But tell me about one person you love close enough that they really know you. Um, oh, give me a minute. Now give me a day. Give me a break, that's right. Give me a break. But the fact is, hospitality says, how do you make room in your life for real people? And it's not just entertaining them in your home or apartment. Entertainment is a, is a performance that puts a burden and stress on everyone. Hospitality is saying, I'm opening my heart and my home to you, such as it is. I hope you like beans on toast or whatever you're serving that night. Because hospitality is a, genu a genuine way of being generous with your spirit. And creating an environment where people say, I don't know what it is, I just like being here. It's not because it's opulent and perfect. It's because I feel accepted. I feel loved. I feel welcomed. Now, the more you can dress it up, the better. But dressing it up without the content and the core ends up being a charade. How many times have you been at some really elaborate, exotic, impressive thing only to feel like I was counting the minutes so I could leave? Versus, oh my gosh, it's 11 o'clock, I got here at 5. 
And the people go, yeah, you should have left a long time ago. No. <laughs> but everybody's saying, oh, I could have been here forever. It was so fantastic. So practical, tangible community building comes out of this love that becomes hospitable. Those of you who are thinking, yeah, I could never do one of those Monday, Thursday dinner things. I just take too much work to get the house together. And I wouldn't know what to make, and I'm not going to be good at that. Let all those excuses go. Just say, you know what? I'd love to be part of pulling one of those together. I'm not sure you know how to do it. We're just going to call a bunch of people and say, can we together figure out how to make it possible for a number of people to get together and spend this evening together? I, I'm telling you, that will be transformational for you and for other people. One little side note, I've never met a professional chef that doesn't like being invited to dinner. You know why? Nobody invites professional chefs to dinner. <laughs> it's too intimidating. It's too intimidating. You think, oh, they're going to judge me. They're going to be looking at me and like, what? This? You burned the water you were boiling. How did you do that? You know? <laughs> but what they, every one of them I've ever talked to would say, I just love having somebody else cook something for me. I don't care what it is. It's just nice to have somebody else do that. All right. So the big, next big idea that follows on this, this loving deeply requires good work and hard work. It's good but hard work. Therefore, he says in verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Whatever you have in your possession is your gift. You might have not much in your possession, but figure it out. You have something. You have time. If you add time to the right attitude, that's pretty powerful. If you have, add that to a spirit of generosity, I don't have much, but whatever it is, I'd like to share it with you. Pretty powerful, don't you think? Jesus didn't say, hey, this is too hard and costly. I hope they appreciate what I'm doing for them. If not, I'm taking my gift and going elsewhere. No, he just came in and said, and it says in the scripture, when, even though we were enemies, he still treated us as friends. And so Mark says it this way, um, quoting Jesus, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was Jesus' attitude. And then likewise, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Notice he didn't say, whoever wants to be my volunteer and help me out in my time of need, as long as it's convenient for them. You're welcome to join me, if it's not too much trouble. Not what he said. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That doesn't mean you deny your identity or that you have need. It says, I'm denying all the things that could be excuses for me opening my life to the living God. And so what's a disciple? It's one who learns from Jesus, lives for Jesus, loves for Jesus, serves for Jesus, and is even willing to die for Jesus. But most importantly, they're willing to live with Jesus and for Jesus. And that was Peter's message to these people. You know, you're right about the horrible situations, but guess what? Jesus is with you. Remember he said, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Remember he said, nothing and no one can separate you from my love. Remember he said, I no longer call you servants because servants don't know what's going on. I call you friends. And so disciples counted a privilege and an honor to be given an opportunity to fulfill their mission. They don't say, oh, you again? You have a need again? What mom says that to her kid? I just fed you yesterday. What? You know, nobody functions that way when they are in love. They have time. 
They bring energy, they bring discipline, they bring focus, they bring generosity, creativity, persistence, excellence. They bring joy to whatever they do. Why? Because they care. They care. They love enough to care, to put up with any inconvenience. And so like an athlete, a farmer, a soldier, an artist, a scientist, an architect, a builder, a teacher, we could go on and on and on and on and on. Why do people give all this money to, to build new hospitals besides getting their name on it? not just to get their name on it. It's because they want to help people have a better life. Why do people build schools? Uh, a friend just died, and, and every time I walk by La Jolla Elementary, I see his family's name on, on the building. It makes me smile. Because uh, his whole life was just living down on the water, uh, counting his money. It was trying to figure out ways to bless UCSD or La Jolla Elementary. His whole life was about that. He said, okay, I've only got so many years. What can I do to bless people? See, the discipline that athletes have, farmers and soldiers, etc. it's this practical way of engaging the world, knowing that everybody's effort uh, matters. And so that's the third big idea. Our words and deeds have impact. So Peter says to us, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength of God, the strength God provides. Why? So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So when you go to speak, you don't try to be authoritative and say, well, you know, the word of God says this. Uh, you say, you know, uh, as I think about the word of God in this situation, this comes to my mind. What do you guys think? Speaking with the authority of God is about directing people's attention back to him. A friend of mine uh, had a, uh, was a, was a, a, a journalist and was, in, was interviewing this, this big deal actor. Uh, the actor thought he was a big deal. And he, um, he was, made a bunch of movies and so it was this very hip magazine he was doing the, the, the interview for. And this guy, for some reason, is just going off on Christians. And something that happened in the news, this guy's going to town on how screwed up Christians are, hypocritical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and my friends listen to this, and you know, the guys know my friend is a Christian. And so, um, why the world is so screw screwed up, and it's because of Christians. And my friend just said, well, that's an interesting point of view. You know, what helps me make sense of it is just, you know, whatever you reap, you'll sow. I mean, whatever you sow, you'll reap. And the guy stopped and goes, whoa, that's brilliant. <laughs> Where'd you get that? He goes, the Bible. That's all he said. He didn't give a verse or anything. He said, that's out of the Bible. He says, no, man. <laughs> really? Yeah. You got any more of those? <laughs> he said, yeah, some other stuff. You read the Bible? Yeah, I find it super helpful to read the Bible. It helps make sense of my life. You see the power of that? It's not about lording it over people, correcting them with the Bible, or, or, or mugging them with the Bible. Likewise, whatever we do, we do with the strength of God. Why? So people say, you're awesome. You are so great. Hopefully, certainly we should have gratitude at all times. But the idea is we don't do this stuff to draw attention to ourselves. The big payoff for a person who's doing something with God's strength is that somebody feels blessed. Oh my gosh, that was so helpful. Thank you. So just what I needed. So because our words and deeds matter, live your life like it matters, spend how, you, how you spend your time matters, how you use your talent and wealth matters, how you treat others matters, how you treat and serve uh, the Lord matters. 
And really how you treat your own soul matters. How you take care of your soul, feeding it with God's word, soaking in his spirit, being refreshed in the company of his people. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to be in a life group and, and, and to have somebody say, can I pray for you right now? And one or more people in your life group put their hand on you and say, Lord, give Steve what he needs right now to trust you, to listen to you, and serve you well. Or to receive your love, whatever the prayer is. I mean, my gosh, that's the power of a life group. Not invasive. It's the kind of thing that we welcome once we understand that I want to be able to live out of the strength that God gives me. Indeed. Fourth big idea. God's presence in the world always provokes a positive or a negative response to his kingdom's advance. Always. The same, some people are like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. Others are like, what? This is, I hate this. I resent this. What do you mean God's in the world? We all like to think that if, if, if we were there when Jesus had come into the world, we would have said, this is so fantastic. We would have been those people saying, yes, more. We, we need more of this. But really what happened when he came into the world is, is, is enough people thought it was a good idea to push him out of the world at the end of a pointy stick. Right? So Peter is speaking to people who are saying, why doesn't everybody get this? Well, they might get it more than you think. Because they think they're the ultimate expression of authority. And they can't imagine anybody being close. And so therefore they dismiss and disdain Jesus. And so Peter says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. This is to be expected. Because when God comes into the world, some people are saying, oh, thank God you are here. Others are saying, dear God, you're here. Let me put this in perspective. Again, Peter's writing to them out of his own experience with Jesus. This is about 64, think about 34 AD, 30 years earlier. Peter's sunning himself, you know, a 45 minute drive from Jerusalem in Joppa on the coast near Tel Aviv. He's up on a friend's roof hanging out. And he has this vision, and the whole vision ends up setting him up to be ready to respond to what happens next. What happens next is somebody comes to the gate and says, uh, looking for Peter. And he's already been given this vision, so this corresponds to the vision he's received, and it's an invitation to go, you know, uh, 40 kilometers up the coast to Caesarea to visit a guy named Cornelius who happens to be the commander of Caesarea, which is the, is the headquarters of all Roman work in Israel. Uh, and so it's, it's a very big deal to go up to Caesarea. It's one of those beautiful places of, uh, that people have created, a man-made harbor, just amazing. He goes up there, he tells Cornelius about Jesus, he, he baptizes Cornelius and his family. Think about this, 34 AD, a Roman commander receives Jesus. 34 or thereabouts. By 312, the emperor of the Roman Empire is confessing Christ as Lord and Savior. That's Constantine. He's been a believer for a little bit, but he's now secure enough to say, by the way, I am a follower of Jesus. That period of time seems like a long time to us. Several hundred years seems like a long time to us. It's a blink of an eye in terms of human history. From that to that, that's an amazing thing. Pliny, or not Pliny, that's the name of the beer, Pliny. Uh, Pliny, the younger, writing to Trajan about Christians in 115 AD, halfway between uh, when Peter's writing his letter and when Constantine uh, confesses his faith. He writes to Trajan and he says, hey, I don't quite know what I should do with these Christians. Pliny is a brilliant guy. He's a magistrate. He's a very righteous guy, actually. 
Uh, and there's no, at that point, official policy of persecution in the Roman Empire, but people are being persecuted everywhere, regionally, provincially. And he writes to Trajan, the emperor, and he says, hey, here's what I do. When I find that somebody's been reported as a Christian, I interview them, and I give them three chances to repent, recant. Uh, if they say, no, bad, uh, same name, not me, uh, I'm not a Christian, okay, you get to go. If, if they say, uh, yeah, I was a Christian, but I don't believe that anymore, he'll say, okay, then light a candle and say a prayer to Caesar, okay, good, you're gone. If they're a Roman citizen and they say, yes, I do believe in Jesus, they get sent to Rome uh, for a trial. And if they're a person after three times who says, I have a follower of Jesus, I execute them. Are you okay with that? And he says, they, and then he says to Trajan, I can't really see anything that they're doing wrong. But just to, to prove that, I've, I've tortured several of these people, which meant he was torturing slaves, because only you couldn't torture a Roman citizen. And what they've told me is this. In fact, two of them were leaders in the church. They told me that when they gather before dawn, they simply sing hymns of praise to their God. They then make vows to each other not to commit sin, not to break the law. Then they share a, a ceremonial meal in honor of their God, and then they have a, a regular meal together. I can't see anything these people are doing wrong, but I realize that their pernicious, ridiculous beliefs could be you know, upsettling and a version of sedition for our culture. Trajan says, I think you're handling it just right. So to think about that, by the time of Diocletian, uh, which is later still, it's an out-and-out -out persecution. When you think of the big persecution that you hear about, it was Diocletian. Diocletian was followed by the father of Constantine, who didn't persecute Christians but wasn't one, and now Constantine. You see the shift in history? Why? Because the people that received this letter from Peter took it to heart. They took it to heart. They were the bridge from Cornelius to Constantine. They could have easily said, oh, forget it, I'm going I'm to avoid this and discount it and disclaim it. Instead, they embraced it. So, dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But Peter's telling them, as you are being raised up by the living God to be his partners in his work in the world. Is there a higher status or standard than that? You think being the Roman emperor is a big deal? It's nothing. And if you read, uh, I've read through the life of every emperor in the Roman Empire, starting with Julius Caesar, who wasn't an emperor, but Augustus was the first. And, and the last one was this hapless guy who took Romulus Augustulu, or something like that is his name, and he was 15 years old. Um, they're all, they all lived a disastrous life. What was the one constant? That God's work in the world continued through people who had no traction whatsoever, to the point that when there were so many people doing this, even the emperors had to say, this is a force to be contended with. And Constantine said, let's embrace it and let's support it. So the final point is this. Live your life with a clear sense of purpose. 1 Peter 4.13 says this. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Why? Because we are part of the new creation in Christ. This means we become so close to Jesus and his love changes us so thoroughly that we start to see the world like he sees it. The things that break the heart of God break our hearts. The things that stir the heart of God stir our hearts. Our everyday quotidian mundane life all of a sudden is elevated 
We become a priesthood of believers in this living temple created by God because we have a new identity as a, as a new family, a new creation in Christ, a new hope, a living hope. That's what Peter's been saying in this letter. We start to see the world as God sees it. We're moved to suffer out of our love for it. And so we become so closely identified with him that there becomes enough evidence to convict us of being his disciple. So I ask you a very simple question. If you were accused of being a disciple of Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Or would you first of all just say, you know, guilty as accused and follow Jesus? Or would you say, well, prove it? And they would say, well, we can't. That's why we're asking you. So if you identify as a Christian, do the people in your daily life know you are a follower of Jesus? Not because you constantly harangue them with it, but because you live it out in their presence. Think of it this way. You're perhaps the one chance for them to understand what that really means. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people saying, yeah, this, this, this person who I, I, I figured out was a Christian. For the longest time, I thought they were vegetarian because they were so nice. But then <laughs> I started figuring out there's something different about them when they told me about Jesus. And that's why I'm here. You are that person. Do not discount your status, your role, your calling. That's what Peter wants you to know. So how does this passage apply to you? Give some thought to that this week. How are you currently suffering for your faith, perhaps? If you are suffering, uh, embrace it as part of God's redemptive work in you. If you're not suffering, why are you hiding? If you're not getting some pushback, why are you hiding? Who doesn't know what matters to you most? Or is it not clear to you yet? If it's not clear to you yet, then open your heart and your mind to Jesus today. Start that journey with him, that relationship with him. Everything hangs in the balance of that decision. He's already decided to love you and accept you and invite you. It's your decision to receive him and walk with him. If you feel so out of it that you don't feel worthy of it, get over that because you'll never be worthy of it. It's his grace that makes you worthy. He thinks you're worth it. And as you start to get pushback, don't increase it by being obnoxious or annoying. Embrace it with the love that he gives you so that, that every time you're presented with an enemy, put your arms around him and make him your friend if, you, if possible. And remember, uh, if you want to be in Jesus' boat, you will get wet, but you will also have the right of your life. And that's worth signing up for. The Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for me, for my brothers and sisters, for this church, that we can love each other in such a profound way, that we can practice hospitality in such a sincere way, that we can believe it the end of all things is near, that we would live with a sense of righteous urgency and passion and conviction that every day you've given us counts. As we experience the, the inherent joys of this world that you've created, we would also have the larger joy of being part of your work in redeeming it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Steve. This brings us to a time of tithes and offering. And as the ushers come forward with the baskets, if you have your prayer connection card, you can fill those out um, and just place those in the basket. I want to give you guys just some reminders about some, some opportunities to get wet as the, as the analogy was, was going. And we have these Monday, Thursday dinners. We have these little brochures in the foyer. Grab one on the way out. And also we have our Easter block party coming up. Highly encourage you. This is a great opportunity just to, to be the gospel in this community. We had 700 people last year. And we're expecting more this year, and we still need some volunteers to round that out. So come see me right after the service. 
Well, tithes and offering here is about us partnering with Jesus, partnering with God with what he's doing in this community. And those who call this home, this is where we just give back out of the blessings we've received. So let's take this time to continue our worship with giving and song. No. Uh -huh. 
swap that out for the hope that he wants to give you. He's done everything necessary to make it possible for you to have a new and, and, and life-changing relationship with the living God. Uh, all you have is this, opening your heart and opening your mind and opening your hands to him. Receive him by faith. Learn to walk with him in faith. Grow in that faith in a way that you too will be God's bridge to blessing other people, just like these people that Peter was writing to. You are those people. This is your time and our time. Do not miss this opportunity. Why? Because the Lord is blessing you. The Lord is making his face to shine upon you and keep you. The Lord is doing everything in his power in heaven and on earth to raise up a people like you who will be faithful to him one day at a time, both now and forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.